I have planned to, to literally preach the heck out of this message, and I'll do the best I can. Uh, when Paul went into Corinth, he uh, later lamented to them, hey, when I came in, I didn't come in with all these catchy speeches and things. I just came in with the power of God. So my, my, my hope today is the power of God moves in this place. So we gave out a book a couple weeks ago, wrapping up our series today, uh, called Money, God, or Gift. And here's the short version of the whole book, and here's the short version of the series, but here's the bottom line. Is, is money the thing you serve, or is money the thing that serves you? Because it's a difference. If money is the thing you serve, then you stress out, worry, work hard, accumulate, hoard, and a whole bunch of other things, money. But if money serves you, <clears throat> it's a good thing. It's something to be enjoyed, it's something to be leveraged, it's something to use. And what we've been looking at is just a few of the passages that, that tell us about this. There's a guy named Ron Blue, and uh, Ron Blue um, has recently been kind of the director of Crown Ministries. I believe Crown combined with somebody else, I don't know the history. But uh, Ron Blue was Dave Ramsey before Dave Ramsey was Dave Ramsey. So the problem is he didn't make the kind of millions of dollars in fame and whatever the Dave Ramsey did, but basically Dave took a lot of uh, Ron Blue and Crown Financial's principles and made them popularized. So uh, what Ron, I listened to this great message by Ron, and uh, he was saying that he went over to this village in Africa, and he was working to help advance the gospel, some things that God was doing in his heart, and he asked the missionary there, he said, okay, so what's the biggest barrier to the gospel? And he expected false religions or idolatry or whatever it is, and he goes, oh, it's this easy. Didn't even miss a beat. He said, it's materialism. And Ron was taken aback. He's like, we are in a dirt polar area. He was trying to describe this wasteland of place where this people lived. And he's like, there's nothing here. What do you mean materialism? He said, it's simple. If you have a straw roof, you want a tin roof. If you have a tin roof, you want a brick roof. If you have one cow, you want two cows. If you have two cows, you need three cows. There's never an end. And so that's when it dawned on me. I was literally listening to this message this week, and it dawned on me, materialism is not really just an American problem. It's a heart problem. And all of us can fall guilty, right? You know this, because the last thing that you bought that you were so excited about, you're already bored with. You upgraded your kitchen, and then you saw somebody else's kitchen, and it was better, and you thought, I need that one now. Or you bought a house, and how long was it until you thought, you know what's wrong with this house? Or you bought a car, and then you saw, after you saw your car everywhere, because that's how it goes, right? Then you started seeing other cars, and you're like, wow, I really want that car. After you married your wife. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Sad but true. In the book we gave out, though, that really is just trying to, it's not everything there is to say on the issue, but it's just trying to get some of those high-level principles, uh, Money, God, or Gift, by Jamie Munson. He has this great little quote here towards the end of the book. He says this, where do you want to go? What are you pursuing? What drives you? What bugs you? What do you want to see changed in your life, in your city, in the world? For Christians, we've got the Holy Spirit working with us. Dream really big. Now, this is a great quote, I think, because it gets to the heart of what God wants to get to with your money. God isn't anti-money. God is pro-money. God wants to leverage money for the good of others in the world. It's one of the things I love about Kingsway, by the way, is we get to partner with God in doing this. So when I look at this question here, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? God has put these dreams in my heart. He has since I was a teenager, and there's some, some that he's grown. But when I was just a teenager, I remember telling <clears throat> my parents even then, I want to adopt one day. And I had no idea that, yes, I would actually follow through and do that. And we adopted our oldest son, Matthias. But I don't just want to adopt, man. I want to impact orphans until my last breath with everything that I can. And so God has placed these dreams, these burdens in my heart that I'm struggling with. They're trying to figure out, God, what do you want to do in these areas? I'm even now praying and seeking him. I've had a desire, a passion to see men who are pure in their marriages and in their hearts. I've, 
had multiple, multiple conversations with men, helping them to strive for this goal in their life because it's a dream that God has placed in my heart. But here's what I know. If God is really big, and he is, and he has unlimited resources, and he does, then he's going to place a dream in your heart for something for you to partner with in the world. My hope is that it'll be here at Kingsway. Some of you visiting today, I realize that this is your first time or your third time. You haven't decided if Kingsway is the place. I hope by the end of today you make a decision because I believe in what God is doing here. And look, there are a lot of churches in our area and they're all doing great things and God bless every single one of them. I have friends I go to coffee and lunch with in many of those churches and I pray for them and I encourage them and I resource them as best I can. Sometimes we even let people borrow things like building space or tables or whatever they need to help advance what God's doing in their church. But different churches are different. And God's called us to different things in the world than maybe he's called Nehemiah Project or even City View here in town or even Plainfield Christian. And so the question for all of us is, God, what are you calling us to and what we're doing in the world? And one of the ways that we impact this world is right here on Sunday morning. We gather together, and there's a couple thousand people who gather with us, and we worship Jesus together, and there's kids meeting Jesus, and they're in life groups, and they're being served by many of you and your families. And I thank you because you are advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. And beyond that, we have people who meet during the week in life groups and small groups gather together. We have people who serve in sheltering wings and, and hope healthcare services. We have people who serve all over the place in various capacities, and they are literally advancing the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And one of the things I love about church, because one of the dreams God's put in my heart is to be a part of a generous community. And, I, and God has challenged me, Matt, nobody's going to be generous if you're not leading the way. So Matt, you've got to lead the charge. You've got to be more generous. You've got to keep challenging that line that you've drawn and keep pushing it, because other people will follow your lead, they're not going to go where you aren't willing to go. And so I want to be a part of a generous community, and I love that we are. Roughly 20%, not roughly, 20% of every dime that comes in, we send back out to, to literally pay for counseling services for some of you who've been blessed by that, to pay for missionaries and pastors all over the world to help people. And I love this about Kingsway, because at the end of our fiscal year, which is around May, the end of May, beginning of June, we basically total up what we make, and then we find out, okay, what's 20% of how much it came in over the year? And so what we've done is we have a pad in there. This is fun. So uh, last year, our budget was roughly $5 million. It's going to be a little less than that this year. Giving is down a little bit. Okay? And so 20% um, of $5 million is how much? Oh, come on now. I'm no math at Bible college, and I got this one. Divide by five. That's the easy way. So $1 million. So last year, we gave away roughly... I didn't get the exact number, give or take, a million dollars. That's fantastic. Yeah. I know, I know churches uh, who are bigger than us on our size who aren't doing that. They invest more money here in their place. Look, don't get me wrong. We need some new carpet. We need some paint on some walls. We need some stuff done around here. But you know what? I don't ever want to see us. I don't ever want to see us take away from that. So what we do is we plan a pad in our budget. So I don't know the exact percentage on this, but we give 20% away, invest it here in our community, sheltering wings and other things and around the ends of the earth. But we have a pad in there like we don't commit. And so what happens is at the end of the fiscal year, 20% is 20%. So the part that's committed is already given away, but then there's a percentage in there. And it's like Christmas in the summer. And so basically, we start hearing from our missionaries, and we start hearing from our partnerships, and we start hearing from people going on mission trips, and we basically have this chunk of change, and it's always different every year, depending on where giving is, and it's like, we get to bless people with a need, and I love this, and we try to tell you those stories as much as we can, so this is a really cool, and I got this email not too long ago about this, and uh, it's just a little bit ago this happened, so... It was the end of the year. We had some money sitting there. Chris Fowler and his mission teams, they come up with, hey, we're going to invest these dollars. And they come to the elders and say, hey, we'd like to go here. And we say, okay. And one of them was we sent 
on behalf of Kingsway, $7,500 to an organization called IDES. And basically what IDES is, is they're up in Noblesville, and they, uh, they partner with people who are hurting and struggling, earth, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, whatever it is, and they take disaster relief, essentially, in to help these people. And so Chris just had a dream and said, hey, we're going to give 7500 to IDES, and would you be willing, and he kind of wrote this letter, would you be willing to, if possible, because you can't direct funds when you're giving them away, would you be able to invest those in Myanmar, where we have missionaries that we already support through, uh, I think it's Myanmar, Myanmar Christian Mission, I think is what it's called, MCM. And um, while the check is being cut and in the mail, check this out. God's story here. The phone rings. Somebody's looking for Chris Fowler. And Gretchen, his administrative assistant, is on the phone. And it's the people from IDES. And they say, look, Myanmar just had this really bad deal. And they're in a rough place. Would Kingsway consider supporting them and giving some money? And Gretchen sent me this email. And she said, I actually had to cut the guy off. I said, you're never going to believe this. So what I want to do is I want to show you some pictures real quick. Uh, just some things that your money did. Uh, these pictures will be scrolling. If they aren't already, maybe they've been scrolling out and look. And um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit. So basically, we sent rice and um, we sent, let me see, rice, salt, instant noodles, water, and cookies. Because everybody knows if you're going through a hard time, you need a cookie. <laughs> For 327 families uh, who are struggling within a 20-mile radius. And... Um, they wrote us this email back, and I'll do my best to translate it. It's in really bad English. Remember, this is me and Mark. But here's what it said. The people around, they all came to the place, one location, where we can meet them for distribution. And a Buddhist monastery hall was provided to us for distribution, and we did it by storing our stuff, and all the villagers came to get these stuffs with wonderfully and joyfully, which I think means they were happy. They said words of thanks a lot for us on the behalf of the donors. That's you. They asked us to convey words of thanks to don donors who provided these things. The, some of them are Christians who received these items, and they actually prayed to God in thanks for all of you. I just want to say great job, church. So proud of you. So my favorite part of that whole story, we got to be generous. We got to give away $7,500. We got to do it at a, at a right time. God connected these dots. Here's the thing I love the most about the story. Did you hear where they gave it away from? A Buddhist monastery. So God redeemed unholy space for a holy thing. I love that. And I get it. If you're visiting with us, you may think, oh, these Christians are so arrogant, blah, blah, blah. I'm a, I'm a little bit confident in who my God is. And I believe in what he's doing in the world. I have a, a friend of mine who's in ministry at another church, and uh, they came alongside refugees in Afghanistan. And uh, they were just helping to feed them and clothe them, and, and it basically it was a, kind of a fallout from the war. And uh, they were just helping them. They were Muslims, didn't know Jesus at all. And after a couple years of doing this, one day they had a meeting with the leaders of the tribe, and the, and the leader said, we don't understand why you guys do all of this for us. They said, because our God has been generous to us and he loves us. We want to be generous to you and love you the same way he's done for us. And they said, but here's what we really can't figure out. Why is it we pray and we pray and we pray and we fast and we fast and we fast to our gods and nothing happens? But you guys show up and your God says, go and you give sacrificially to help us. And your God hears your prayers. I don't understand. And he said, because of this, we want to believe in your God. And I tell you, I hear stories like that from our missionaries all the time. P.V. John, our missionary in India, tells us stories about uh, they literally built a well. Um, 
They were getting water from this well, and they were giving it away to just try to love on people who didn't have clean water and uh, advance the gospel there. And uh, so the, some of the local Muslims and Hindus got these ideas about, hey, they can have a moneymaker. You got this Christian on the corner giving away free. We'll build a well and charge money. And they kept digging and digging and digging and couldn't find water. <laughs> Come on now. That's cool stuff right there. <laughs> so here's what I know. Here's what I told you last week. I love this. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, and then verse 10. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives what? Cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Four, God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then the bread to eat. He'll give the first, he'll give the second. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. And I love that verse, leave that verse up, because do you get what it's saying? God will meet your needs and he'll give you extra to give away. And when you get this principle, it's a faith issue. This is where the God or gift issue comes in. Because when you see what you have is yours and it's all for you, it's a God and you serve it. But when you realize that what you have is a blessing from the Lord to both be enjoyed and given away, that God gives you more because he realizes. Now, look, I'm not a prosperity gospel guy. I just believe that if you will faithfully take a generous step, God will meet all your needs so that you can keep being generous. And I've seen it and I've heard about it over and over and over again. So if you've missed last few weeks, um, I want to take you back to this first question real quick. And I just want to tell you one of the dreams of my heart that God is answering, and I hope he's doing it for his glory. Take us back to this very first quote here from Money, God, or Gift. So ask yourself this question. Where do you want to go? What are you pursuing? What drives you? What eats at you? What do you want to see changed in your city, in the world, in your school, in your families? And don't think small. Small never works. Go big or go home with God. What do you want to do? One of the things I was growing up, I grew up at a Christian home and a Christian church, and they loved Jesus, and they did their best to teach me about him. I had a lot of questions. So I sat through a lot of sermons. I sat through a lot of services, and I remember constantly sitting out with my youth minister and asking questions and asking questions. I'll never forget this one day. We were on a campfire with a bunch of us, and I was asking all these questions about theology and philosophy and God, and I remember him saying, Matt, you just need to go to Bible college and get all your questions answered. And he was probably right. But there was something in that that irritated me because I wanted to know more about the Bible and there wasn't anybody really helping me ex explaining it to me. So here's one of my goals early on when God called me into ministry. I said, God, if I'm going to serve you, then I want to be able to teach the Bible the way that I wish it was taught to me. And I realize some of you get bored with some of the history and the background of things I explained, but my goal is to try to give you information so you could see the context, so you could dig into the life of what's going on, so you can extrapolate meaning and say, what does this mean for me today? And that's my hope when I get up here and I speak for way too long is because there's so much more to say that I'm like, goodness, if you could understand this, it's so beautiful. It's so awesome. And so what I want to do today is just slightly take you back because this is a dream that God has placed in my heart. I just want to take you back a little bit, bring you up to speed real quick on where we've been and why it's important so that when we get to the end today, which I hope is the right hook, when we get there and you see it, you go, that makes total sense now. So what I told you a couple weeks ago is there was a guy named Saul and his name was changed to Paul. I'm only going to refer to him as Paul for confusion's sake. Paul, in Acts chapter 8 and 9, meets Jesus. Jesus comes to him, calls to him, says, you're going to follow me, and I'm going to send you out to the ends of the earth. And Paul does that faithfully, and the rest of the Bible tells us all about that. It's an awesome journey. 
He spends a little bit of time in there. If you read your New Testament, we find out that he spends some time literally learning from Jesus. Like, this is kind of crazy awesome. Jesus actually shows up and teaches Paul as best we can explain. You mean the Jesus that went up to heaven? It's what it says. That's all I know. I don't know what else to do with it. So, G- Paul spends time in Jesus' presence, and then Paul goes out with a guy named Barnabas, and he goes out and he starts planting churches and telling people about the gospel in the local area. And that would be Paul's first missionary journey. Paul comes back home, or back to his planting church, uh, the church of Antioch, and um, shortly after that, excuse me, he begins in uh, what we call uh, Antioch on his second missionary journey. So here we go, second missionary journey. Paul begins over here in Antioch, and he goes up, this is his hometown here, Tarsus, and he goes to Derby and Lystra. And if I were to show you the map, I don't have it, but if I were to show you the map of his first missionary journey, it would basically look like this. So he was kind of just in this area here. So when he came through here, in these two areas, he planted some churches the first time around. Here, his second time around, now this is Acts chapter 16. I want you to get the context of what's happening here to be able to make the bigger point. So right before he launches here, he goes out with a guy named Silas. The guy he's been traveling with is a guy named Barnabas. And that's huge. Because in Acts 15, as Paul's going out and he's planting this church with Barnabas, they're getting a lot of flack, and especially from the Jewish converts who are basically saying, look, if you're going to become a Christian, you need to follow the Jewish dietary laws, you need to dress like a Jew and act like a Jew, grow a beard like a Jew, but probably most importantly, you need to get circumcised. And Paul's going around trying to spread the gospel, and I can't imagine why, but it's a barrier. Because all these men who are coming to faith of Jesus who are 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 are going, I got to do what? Yeah, that whole salvation by grace alone sounds really good. But Paul's like, no, no, see, that's not part of the gospel. So Paul and Barnabas, and after the first missionary journey, they come back to Jerusalem, and they gather together Peter and James and the elders in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 15, go read it later. And basically say, tell us what you want us to tell these people who are coming to faith in Jesus. And I love this, because in Acts, what they decide is, let's not make it any harder for those who are coming to faith in Jesus. So here's the three rules, guys. Don't practice sexual immorality, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, and avoid food with blood in it. And basically, in all of them, it's don't offend God. So in other words, what Paul is told by James and Peter and the elders in Jerusalem, whatever you have to do to get the word out, as long as it doesn't offend God in these three ways, get the word out. This is huge, by the way. Far too many Christians have lost sight of this principle We are to do whatever, whatever is necessary except compromise the gospel to get the word out. Whatever it takes, get the word out. Because people are dying and they're going to hell and they're far from him. Paul's excited and the people rejoice. And he and Barnabas had this really big fight about something stupid because Christians always fight about something stupid, but... Paul goes one way, Barnabas goes another, and Barnabas takes John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, and Paul grabs Silas now, and he begins this journey, and they come up here, and they get to Lystra, and they'd already planted a church here in Lystra during his first missionary journey, and they meet a young man named Timothy here, and I want to show you this now in Acts chapter 16, and here's what it says, Acts chapter 16, verse 1, Paul went first to Derby and then to Lystra where there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, he managed for Timothy to be, wait, wait, what? Circumcised? 
Before they left for everyone, sorry, before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Okay, wait a minute. Acts 15 is all about why people coming in faith in Jesus don't have to be circumcised. Acts 16 starts with a guy being circumcised. Like, okay, I'm confused already. And I don't know about you. If you read your Bible, you're like, wait a minute, what just happened here? So there's a few things. Number one, one of the biggest things to know is Paul um, is circumcising Timothy because Timothy is a, is a half Jew. A guy named Titus that Paul ministers to and, and, and spends some time with, he's full Gentile. He never gets circumcised, but, but Timothy is half Jewish, so he circumcises him. But the question is why? And here's the why. It's two things I want you to hang on to as it sets up everything for today. Number one, he circumcises him because Paul says in another one of his writings, he says, I become all things to all people for the sake of of the gospel. So when I'm with the Jews, I become like a Jew. I follow all their laws. I grow out my beard. I do everything like a Jew does. And when I'm with a Gentile, I become like a Gentile. As long as it doesn't compromise those three things from Acts 15, I'll do it. So when I'm with a Jew, I'm a Jew. When I'm with a Gentile, I'm with a Gentile. Why? So in hopes that I might win one, win one to Jesus. So he says, Timothy, you're half Jewish. You're going with me, and we're going to start with the Jews and then go to the Gentiles, and I don't want your life to be a barrier. We don't know how old Timothy is. We know that he's young. So let's just imagine he's 25. I'll make up a random number. I don't know. He's probably not a teenager, but he's probably not an adult. He's somewhere in young range. Let's just say he's 25, which is probably a decent guess, give or take a few years. Okay, any 25-year-olds in this room want to volunteer for that job? <laughs> Think about this for a minute. Go back to that map for a second. So Paul gets to Lystra. Timothy doesn't know he's coming. He shows up. He's teaching. This church that he started is there. And they're like, man, we got this sharp young guy named Timothy. And he says, tell you what, give me your best and your brightest because I want to go take the gospel to other places. Timothy says, here am I. Send me. Okay, Timothy, here's the thing. We're going to have to get you circumcised first. And by the way, I'm going to do it. <clears throat> I'm going to stay here and work as a lawyer, and I'm going to send all my money to you, Paul, so you can go take the gospel to the ends of the earth. God's done great things in you. That, if I were Timothy, that's how it would feel. Why does Timothy say yes? Because he realizes that to advance the gospel, it's going to take going all in. Timothy realizes that if this thing is going to go to the ends of the earth and it's going to save people, it's going to require a no-holds-barred approach. There is no cap on what God is allowed to do or can do. If it helps, then I'm in. And so he's just following in Paul's footsteps. As Paul says, I become all things to all people for the sake that I might win just one because that is the goal. So then he goes up. He plants more churches. We get up here in the middle of Acts 16, and God leads him into the here, and he comes on back down. So then we find ourselves at Paul's third missionary journey. Real quick, Paul's third missionary journey. Notice again, he starts in the Antioch of Syria. Eventually, he'll go all the way up and come back to Jerusalem. While he's up here, he's taking Timothy with him, both his last journey and this one, and he's sending Timothy to all these different places. While he's up here, somewhere up in here, we aren't 100% sure, he sends Timothy back to the church in Ephesus because when they came through and planted the church in Ephesus, man, it blew up. It was awesome at first. Everybody was excited. But do you remember if you were here a month or two ago? I taught on Ephesus in Revelation that the first church of the seven churches of Revelation and Ephesus is falling apart. It is just broken and messed up. There's backbiting and devouring. Everybody's inward fighting towards each other instead of focusing on the love of God and the love for the world. Ephesus, when they first came to faith in Jesus, they're so sold out for Jesus. 
Jesus, that they literally brought together their magic incantation books from their false idols. They literally brought them into the streets and burned them for all the world to see. They were so sold out. This cost them tens of thousands of dollars. And they said, we don't care what it costs. The glory of God is more important than anything we have on this earth. But now false teachings have gotten in and have corrupted Ephesus. And so somewhere when Paul's up here in his third missionary journey, he sends Timothy back to Ephesus and he says, you go there and you tell them about the love of God. You call them back to a holy living. You tell them to care for each other. And the reason I tell you all this is because I want to look. Paul completes his journey. He comes back into Jerusalem and he writes this letter back to Timothy who's in Ephesus. And he's saying to them, look, here's my advice to you as you're leading this church. I can't be with you at this point. We don't know if Paul had a fourth missionary journey. History says he might have. The Bible ends at the third missionary journey. We don't know. So while Paul is writing from here, he may never see Timothy again. And he's saying to him, if I don't ever get to see you again in my stead while you're leading in my place, here's what I want you to know. That's where I want to pick up now. Now the sermon's really starting. Go ahead and start the clock over up there. (laughs) Just joking. I'm just joking. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to jump around a little bit for time's sake. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by the command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, who gives us hope. I'm writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Do you hear the love Paul has for his friend? Literally calls him his son in the faith. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace and mercy and peace. I love this. Let me just pause for a second and take a teaching moment. Notice that Paul doesn't write Timothy and start with his instructions and rebukes and advice. Come on, parents, friends. Isn't that where we tend to start in the judgmental part? Paul starts with a blessing, grace, mercy, peace upon you, my brother, my son, my friend, I love you. May God be with you and reveal himself to you. Verse three, when I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Jump into verse five. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. In other words, Paul's saying, look, the whole reason I teach everybody everywhere is these three things. Pure heart, clear conscience, genuine faith. Pure heart, clear conscience, genuine faith. Everything he says from here to the end of chapter 6 is, Timothy, I want you to have a pure heart, a clear conscience, a genuine faith. Here's how you get it. Verse uh, 12, jump down with me. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. He has given me strength to do his work. I'm feeling that today. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him. Even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ, in my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, verse 15, and everybody should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Jesus didn't come to save the healthy. Why? There are none. Paul goes on and he says, and I am the worst of them all. I want you to hear the humility in Paul's voice as he's training up Timothy. He's training us. Don't walk around arrogant and prideful and think you're all that. You're better than somebody else because your sin is less than their sin, at least in your mind. Paul's saying, I'm the worst of the worst. 
And I tell people that. Go on. Look, verse 16. Yeah, verse 16. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Do you hear Paul's drive? His goal, his end game is what? The glory of God among the nations. Tonight, we're going to gather together at 6 o'clock. Come, please come. We're going to have a worship service. There's no child care. Figure it out or bring them. I don't care. We're going to sing, and we're going to praise God, and we're going to start to turn our attention back to Revelation. And next week, we'll pick up a Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And I'm so stoked because Revelation 4 or 5 is that first place we see in Revelation. It happens again in multiple other places. It's the first place where we see the multitudes from every tribe, tongue, language gathered together at the throne room of God and in Jesus' presence singing praises to his name, giving him honor, ascribing worth to him as Kevin wrote about in our loop, did such a great job because he's the only one worthy. And Paul is saying, this God changed my life. So I'm giving him my all to take this message of hope to the ends of the earth. That's the end game. Look at verse 17. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. Verse 18 now. We got six chapters, so I better hurry. I'm just kidding. Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you. Based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier, may they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear For some people have deliberately violated their consciences, and as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Paul writes this letter to Timothy because he's going back to Ephesus, and Ephesus is a dark place. And Paul's worried that Timothy's faith isn't going to be strong enough to last. So he says, remember, when the Holy Spirit came on you, remember, we laid hands and we prayed on you. Remember that God has used you. Remember what I've taught you. Remember, don't turn The rest of the book of Timothy is Paul telling Timothy, keep doing everything I showed you. Keep doing what I taught you. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't turn back. Don't turn away. Because some have not followed. And it's cost to them dearly. And look, Christians could fight all day long about whether a person can lose their salvation. Here's the short version of that. There's two major camps when it comes to faith. One camp says you can lose your salvation. You don't just sin and, you know, and it's gone, but in the same way you chose it, you can walk away from it. The other camp says you absolutely cannot lose your salvation. There are people in Scripture that appears they lost their salvation, but they were never saved in the first place. And here's the thing. Both camps are describing the same group. Both camps, regardless of which side you fall on, are describing a person who at one point looked like they were right with God, but then were not. And we actually get lists of names of people like Alexander that Paul writes about later who turned away from the faith. And so I'll let God figure out whether Alexander was ever saved or not. But what I know is it's a warning. It's a challenge. By God's grace, don't become one of them. It shouldn't surprise us that when John writes about the Antichrist, He says, and there are already many antichrists because an antichrist is one who was once with us and is now no longer. So apparently, 
There are plenty of people in the faith who will come to faith and trust Jesus as their only hope, but the worries and concerns of this world will choke out their faith. And some of you are there right here, right now. You're on the brink, and you're not sure what to do about it. Marriage has gotten hard. Life has gotten hard. Things didn't turn out like you planned. You didn't, God didn't pan out for you the way you thought he would. In your private sinful life or your private desires or your waning faith is making you wonder if God is actually still good. And the only thing I could say to you, the only thing I could say to you is to trust him. He is good. He will not fail you. Don't give up on him. He will not give up on you. But if there's something in your life that's keeping you from him and it's leading you down this path and you can see it but you don't know what to do about it, the answer is stop where you are. Stop and turn back. And Paul goes on to say to Timothy in the end of 1 Timothy, when we get into chapter 6, that one of the major, major reasons this happens is money. Take a look. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. That's referring to everything he said. A lot we skipped. Some people may contradict our teaching. But these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy and division and slander and evil suspicions. Remember, that's what's going on in Ephesians and Revelation. Verse 5. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt. They've turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. In other words, Paul is warning Timothy, be careful of hypocrisy. There are people out there, Timothy, they're going to come along and they're going to look like you. They're going to say things like you say. They're going to act like you act, but their hearts are not for God. They're using their appearance of goodness to manipulate other people. And really, really they're not sold out to Jesus. That's a warning to Timothy, and it's a warning to us. Don't fake it, because you can't fake God. Did you know the word hypocrite means stage actor? It's what the word literally means. Don't be on stage acting one way. Don't be in front of your family acting one way, your boss, your friends, your coworkers. But privately, there's another part of you. Guys, this isn't a rebuke. It's, it's not a condemnation. It's, a, it's an exhortation. It's a warning. It's a, don't go there. I know far too many couples whose marriages are falling apart because the wife has some secret credit card slush fund account that her husband doesn't know about until it finally all comes and blows up. Or the husband's got the slush fund to pay for his immorality, things that he's been getting away with, and it's ruining marriages. Why? Because we've not fully allowed the light of Jesus Christ to permeate every area of our lives. Verse 6, so Timothy, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. In other words, be holy, seek God, and be content with whatever he's given you. doesn't matter if you have one cow or a thousand cows. Be happy with what he's given you. And that is what it means to be wealthy, Timothy. After all, verse 7, 
We brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, then let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And just stop there. You've probably heard this taught on before, but notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say what we've often heard. It doesn't say the love of money is the root or is evil or all kinds of evil. It says it's the root. In other words, when we love money, when money is our God, instead of God being our God and money's a gift, then when we pursue that, there's, it creates this deep longing that out of that grows all kinds of things, all kinds of things. In fact, last night I was opening my Bible, I was reading my, my passage for the day, and it was in Ephesians 4, ironically, and I was like, that'll be great. I can add time to my sermon, and it's not my fault because God ordained it. So anyway, in Ephesians 3 and 4, God, Paul is rebuking the church in Ephesus, ironically. He's rebuking them, and he's saying, don't be sexually immoral. Don't be idolaters, and don't be greedy. And he says, because a greedy person has a craving after the things of this world. Man, I know you're convinced you're not greedy, and maybe you aren't, but I gotta tell you, I don't wanna be greedy, but my heart goes there. I'm just being honest. I don't long to be greedy. My wife and I strategically plan to be generous, and part of the reason we do is because it leaves me without extra money to waste on me. I am naturally a greedy person but the Spirit's renewing me day by day. And it gives me a passion and a vision for things that are bigger. And every time I get tempted to build something else or buy something else or renovate something else, God brings along a need strategically. It says, remember, remember, remember. I'm like, oh yeah, that's true. I forgot about that. Because God is good and he's faithful. Jump down with me to look at uh, the rest of verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. I heard a story about a guy who owned two houses, one in Florida and one up here in the Midwest, and uh, he was constantly stressed out because he was always having to go down to Florida to drive out insects and rats and renovate and clean up and care for, cut the grass up. There was always something going wrong. And instead of having a true place where he could get away and have a break, what he had was an extra stress in his life. I'm not saying having a second home is a bad thing. I know other people that was at their story. But the more you have, the more things you have to give attention to. That's the reality. If you had a smaller home with less stuff, guess what? It'd be less stuff to take care of. Amen? How many times did you think, I'm going to get a basement. It'll be awesome. And then what did you do? You filled it up with junk that needs constant attention. That's just how it goes. So what's the answer? Thankfully, the Bible doesn't leave us without answers. Verse 11, but you, Timothy, you're a man of God, so run. Don't walk, don't skip, don't crawl, don't sit and debate. Turn and run from all these things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith and love, perseverance and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. In other words, remember the height, Timothy, and don't fall from it. Hmm. It might sound like something else Jesus will say later to Ephesus. Verse 17, so here it is. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so 
unreliable. And everybody in this room ought to say, amen. Because all it takes is one greedy corporate executive. All it takes is one company bad decision, and your entire retirement account has gone down the tubes. All it takes is some bad government management. Next thing you know, your Social Security ain't coming into your 105. All it's going to take is one bad mistake, one bad person, and all of a sudden what you thought you had isn't there. See, what we think we're hoping for for money is security, right, and safety, and prominence, and it can never meet any of these dreams because when it's trying to do those things, it's a God. But when it's a gift, it's something to be used for God. That's what he says next. Verse 18, tell them to use their money to do good. They will be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. Notice that, always being ready to share with others. You know what you can't share with others? Well, you can, a lot of you do, but you know what you can't share with others? Debt. The only way you can plan to be generous is to plan to be generous. And I don't say this to be a pat on the back. I just want you to know, guys, I'm not, I'm practicing this as the best as I can. So we give above the tithe the king's way. We give to other missionaries and orphans and kids. And then we have a generosity slush fund. And every paycheck, money comes out of our paycheck and it goes into that bank account. And it's just for the sake of meeting the needs that God brings about or blessing other people. We've paid for couples to get counseling when their marriages were struggling. We've paid for people uh, uh, to go on their honeymoons to help with that. We've paid to give vacations uh, to, to uh, other ministers who just needed a break to get restored and renewed. We've bought food for friends who were just going through a hard season and say, hey, let us give you some food or whatever it is. We've, it's just a blast, by the way. You know, I've never met an unhappy, generous person. Think about it for a minute. But I mean all kinds of unhappy, stingy people. But I never meet somebody who's unhappy, who's giving stuff away. That's why Jesus says it's like a basic principle. It's better to give than to. So verse 18 and 19. So tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Always be ready to share with others. And by doing this, they will be storing up, their, storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. All these things we trade, we think they're real life. Paul's saying, he's just quoting Jesus, they're not real life, they're false, they're false substitutes. Remember what Jesus says, store up your treasure in heaven where moth and rust and thief cannot come in and break in and steal and destroy. How do you do that? You invest in the lives of other people. So that on the last day when the multitudes are gathered together, white and black and Hispanic and Spanish and every nation and color, skin you can imagine are gathered there in the throne room of God, you might look out and say, I took part in some of this. Because here's where my treasure is, right here. And on that day when we cry out to the Lamb like we will tonight at 6, it's going to be an awesome day. So last week, uh, I handed out these cards. Here's what the card looks like. You'll find these on the tables that are set up in just a moment. We're going to go around the room, and um, we got communion there. 
If you didn't get a card last week, it's not too late. If you intentionally skip so you can pray about it, seek the Lord, it's not too late. I'm proud to say that uh, we've had a number of people say, you know what, I'm going to skip these two, or I'm going to jump from these two, and I'm going to come to right here. We've had a number of people say, it's time for me to go from here to here. We've even had some people say, I'm here and I want to go more. I'm just so proud. We have just less than 500 people, just less, I can't remember the exact number, 472 or something, uh, who filled out a card. And uh, I think by the end of today, if you make it your day, we might actually get our highest number ever. You're not telling me how much you're giving, because I don't know, it's between you and God. But you're just committing right here between God and, and us. You're going to put your name on there and sign it. I don't just want to give occasionally. I don't just want to give intentionally, like when I'm here, I'll commit. No, I'm going to commit to giving first. And let me just say, by the way, we have an app, because I realize most of you don't do checks anymore. My wife won't stop doing checks. She loves checks. But I know a lot of you aren't there. And guess what? In our app, there's something called Push Pay. You could click on it. It's the Give button. And you can actually just say, you know what? It's really hard because I, I spend everything, then I have nothing left to give. You can actually just set it. So you know what? Right after I get the paycheck, right after the day after I get paid, just here you go, God. Take the first part. You can just do that. You can do it even right now today. It's not hard. It takes like five minutes. And I just want to challenge you to think about what God is doing in the world, the dream he's placed in your heart, and what are you going to do to make it a reality? So I'm going to pray, and here's my prayer in just a moment. I want to pray for God to move in us and give us generous hearts, and I'm going to pray for our missionaries and partnerships all over the world, and I'm going to pray that God would do fantastic things in this place as we become a people who seek to be like our God. Let's just stand. I'll pray for you, and then when I'm done praying, move around the room and get your communion. And... Oh, great God above, uh, Lord, would you stir in this place? Lord, I had all these thoughts and ideas of how the sermon was going to go, and I'm just tired and have very little voice left. So, God, I just need your spirit to do what only you could do, because if it's from me, it's not going to last. God, would you stir in us a desire for generosity? God, would your Holy Spirit in us fight against the natural desires towards self and greed? God, help us. And Lord, I pray you give us a vision beyond the world we're currently seeing and experiencing to see to the ends of the earth that there are those in need and those who don't have the gospel. And God, help us to tear down every barrier, every wall that is a, a, a barrier to people coming to know you. God, help us to be as passionate as Paul and as Timothy. And even if it requires something radical, God, something radical like circumcision, some crazy thing later in our life that we hadn't planned on, God, would you help us to do that because we want to go all in with you. God, we just pray that you would take all of the dollars that we give both here locally and to the ends of the earth and help abused women going to sheltering wings to seek help. Help people who are sick and can't afford health care going to Hope Healthcare Services to receive medical attention. And may they learn about Jesus in those places. God, we pray for City View Church and this home they're building for single moms. God, would you raise up all the dollars necessary, roughly, roughly $30,000 worth of stuff gathered here a couple weeks ago. Thank you, Jesus. God, we pray for our missionaries and our pastors, hundreds who go to the ends of the earth and Egypt and Myanmar and Mexico and India and Haiti. God, would you bless their work? Could you give them resources, God, to do all that you have planned for them? God, help us to partner with them. And then, God, for the roughly 20,000 right here and four and a half miles around Kingsway who don't know you, God, would you create inroads to us telling them the good news of Jesus Christ, that their hope is not in what they have or what they experience. Their hope is in you and in you alone. And God, start that dream in our hearts. And if there's anything today, God, in our lives that's a barrier between us and you, today may we lay it down for good. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, we pray. Amen.